questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Famergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, and believe me, you want to benefit from doing so, just click on the subscribe button. And as you know, Veritas is more than paranormal. It's more than the mysteries of the universe. We deal with many topics. Health and wellness are coming now. What used to be Sanitas now will be coming to Veritas. But we also discuss the economy, finances, investing, and how to circumvent a financial collapse. Many of you have contacted me for years asking to bring back Catherine Austin Fitz. She was in the show many, many years ago, and all subsequent invitations she has declined. So I respect her decision. Why? That's unknown to me. If you want to have her back, she's always welcome to come here. The door is always open for her. But uh, I don't understand why she doesn't want to return since I speak the financial language. And so does she, and she also discusses the more esoteric topics. So it would be a great combination, but in lieu of having Catherine Austin Fitz, we have someone else tonight. And you will not be disappointed. And if you want to get in touch with me, have a guest suggestion, have feedback, or want to be on this radio program, I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. With the new year, tonight we discuss economic predictions for the next decades and how to protect yourself from a financial collapse. And to tell us more, our special guest is someone who has been requested for quite some time. His name is Peter Schiff. Peter is an economic forecaster, an investment advisor influenced by the free market Austrian School of Economics. He's one of the few forecasters who accurately and publicly predicted the 2007 housing market collapse and subsequent 2008 financial crisis. His latest best-selling book, The Real Crash, America's Coming Bankruptcy, How to Save Yourself and Your Country, warns that the 2008 crisis was just a prelude to a larger sovereign debt crisis in the United States that may lead a collapse of the U.S. dollar. Peter recommends long-term investment in foreign markets with sound fiscal policies, as well as global commodities, including physical precious metals. And we have a more comprehensive bio, including the titles of all his books and the names of all his companies and websites right on our website. And directly from Westport, Connecticut, I would like to welcome Peter Schiff. Hello, Peter, and welcome. How are you? Oh, I am well. How are you doing today? Excellent, and I'm so privileged because for for years, and I have to tell you right from the beginning, you stated years ago that there was going to be a real estate bubble, and many people ignored you, including me, so I'll be humble about it. So why don't we begin with that specific fact? What prompted you back then to predict that? Well, I mean, I understood the effects of Fed policy. Uh, I knew that real estate in particular was particularly sensitive to interest rates because most people, when they buy a house, they, they, they buy the monthly payment. They buy the mortgage payment. And so as interest rates were depressed, it kept mortgage rates low, even as housing prices were rising. And then a lot of people were taking advantage of adjustable rate mortgages, which were particularly inexpensive. And a lot of them were interest only, where people weren't even making payments of principal. They just paid the interest. And when the interest was extremely low, thanks to the Fed, people were able to buy much larger houses or much more expensive houses than they would ordinarily be able to afford. And so I saw this and I saw the impact that rising real estate prices was having on the economy, on consumption, on the ability of people to transform their real estate riches into spendable cash by refinancing and turning their homes into ATM machines. And I saw the lending standards going out the window <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the proliferation of uh, no dock, no down payment mortgages where people could buy houses without any money. Yep. In fact, there were certain circumstances where you can get cash back. You could actually buy a house and get money. Uh, so it was it was really a crazy time. 
And it was amazing how few people could see what the government was doing, what the Fed was doing to the market. And of course, then you had the direct intervention. The government was guaranteeing mortgages. Uh, and in fact, the biggest buyer of subprime mortgages were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which is one of the reasons they basically went bankrupt, which was part of my predictions. But the government was co-signing everybody's mortgage. And of course, they still do that, you know. Uh, and so this was very distortive to the free market. So more people were buying houses than would ha would have it, you know, without, without all that government help. And they were paying prices that were absurd and that never would exist in a free market. And so I knew this was going to uh, collapse and I knew prices would collapse. And I knew that there would be an ensuing financial crisis because as real estate prices collapsed and mortgages went bad uh, and people started to default on their mortgages, that this would create a banking crisis because all those mortgages are the liabilities in the banking sector or assets rather to the banks. And if all of a sudden those assets are not there, the, the whole bank collapses because they need those assets to support their capital structure. So I saw all this and, you know, I helped position people to profit and profited uh, through shorting the market. And of course, you know, they, 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 uh, Michael Lewis wrote a book, The Big Short, and they made a right. movie about it. But not that many people saw that. But, you know, to me, it was very obvious. But what's more important is not that crisis that everybody mixed. But the even bigger crisis that everybody is about to miss, you know, it's the same people and it's the same uh, forces at play. And in fact, all of the problems that led to the 2008 financial crisis have been exacerbated since that crisis. So we haven't solved the problems. We've made them all worse. And so it's the same disease, only we now have a, a, a much more severe case of that disease. And it's about to become inflamed. And, you know, a lot of people are very optimistic about Donald Trump now. Of course, these people were petrified of a Trump presidency right up until the point he was elected. Now everybody is euphoric, at least in the market. But the reason that I, you know, I thought Trump was probably going to win is because I understood what most people in the markets did not. And that was that the recovery that has been, uh, you know, uh, much hyped up by the media and by the Fed and by Obama. And, you know, I knew that it was phony. I knew that there was no real economic growth, that we had a, a reflated bubble masquerading as growth. And I knew that beneath the, the a superficial layer of manufacturer statistics was a very weak economy. And I knew a lot of people would be voting, uh, you know, for Trump out of frustration and out of anger, out of protest. Because people's standard of living was falling. I mean, I often said that this is the first recovery in history to be worse than the recession that we're supposedly recovering from. And so I thought Trump could win. But of course, the economic problems that are the reason Trump was elected have not been solved because we elected him, nor is he going to solve them. The optimism is uh, unfounded, just like people were very hopeful that Barack Obama would make things better and he made things worse. And now you have a lot of false hope uh, surrounding Donald Trump. But we have some serious, serious economic problems that need to be tackled before we can make any legitimate progress. But nobody has the stomach for tackling it. I mean, President-elect uh, Trump, when he ran, he did not run on an austerity program. He wasn't promising, you know, government spending cuts and that, you know, we'd have to suck it up and work harder and spend less and save more and rebuild the economy. He just promised tax cuts and more government spending and, you know, the equivalent of, you know, you're overweight, but I've got a diet of, uh, you know, cupcakes and, and ice cream and, you know, you're going to be able to lose weight. It wasn't like you're going to have to, you know, go to the gym and eat salad. It was, yeah, just elect me and I'm going to make everything great. And, you know, it, it's not that simple. You know, it's interesting because days before the election, analysts were predicting that if Trump were to win, 5% of the market would just collapse that night. And that's exactly what happened. And that night, I actually shorted the market because I thought, I don't get it. Trump wants less regulation and less taxes, which is parallel to what Wall Street wants. And Hillary wants the opposite, higher taxes and more regulation. Why did the, what was the disconnect there with the media? Well, you know, obviously one of the reasons is the media wanted to create 
a situation where people were worried about voting for Trump so that they wouldn't do it, right? Oh, it's going to be terrible if Trump is elected, so we better not vote for him. Like Brexit or Norway. Yeah, but I always said, too, that, look, Trump, if you, you know, if you want to be in the market, you know, Trump is more business friendly, at least his rhetoric, right? He's talking about less regulation and lower taxes, and Hillary is talking about more regulation and higher taxes. So how can that be good? But I think people were worried about the uncertainty of of saying the status quo, about protectionism or things like that, because it's a very fragile system. I mean, it's the whole thing is a gigantic bubble. In fact, interestingly enough, Donald Trump talked about the bubble in the stock market when he was a candidate. Now he's claiming credit for the rally. He's like excited about the market going up. But, you know, if it was a bubble before he was elected, it's a bigger bubble now. I mean, it's just more more air in it. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I didn't understand the the reasoning why the market should go down if Trump won. I mean, there are other reasons for the market to go down, like it's very expensive. Uh, but Trump is more market friendly than Clinton. But the market's going to have a lot of serious problems. I mean, yes, if corporate tax rates are cut, then that would increase the valuation of, of stocks. But stocks have a lot of debt. And I think Americans are broke. And as the economy weakens and interest rates rise, uh, ultimately the dollar is going to fall and it's going to be very tough for the, the U.S. stock market. But um, it still might go up in nominal terms, but it's not going to make any headway in real terms. Speaking of the bubble, the Dow is racing to 20,000 and the S&P is already at an all-time high, gaining 29 points today. Two words come to mind from Alan Greenspan, irrational Exuberance. Let's begin with the markets. Are they going to continue going up for some time? Well, I think they'll go up for a bit. I mean, I don't know how much longer they'll go up at this pace because the markets are, you know, anticipating things that are impossible. So it is irrational, uh, the belief. But again, the people that are buying stocks, you know, like they're going out of style because Trump was elected, were the same people that were saying, well, if Trump wins, it's going to be terrible for stocks. So. <clears throat> You know, it's just it doesn't really matter. It's just a narrative. And, and, and they're making they're trying to spin it in a positive way because that's what Wall Street does. And I do think there were some shorts in the market that are obviously getting squeezed. This is a year end rally. People, you know, people are trying to maybe reposition to look a little better as the year wraps up. But, you know, the Fed is talking rate hikes. They might hike rates next week. <clears throat> Long term interest rates, meanwhile, have already moved up uh, considerably. And they could be moving up much more, which is going to be a huge headwind for the U.S. economy because we have so much debt. And because we have an enormous amount of debt, as interest rates go up, we have to spend a lot more money paying the interest on that debt. And so if we're, if we're spending all this money paying interest on what we borrowed, there's a lot less money left over uh, for, you know, the, re- the economic growth or what other people, you know, to pay for current consumption because you're still paying off prior consumption. I have no doubt, I think the market has already digested that Yellen will say that interest rate is is going up uh, a quarter percent uh, come December. Do you think she'll also mention future quarters? No, I I think that the Fed will try to downplay the expectations for additional tightening, but what's more important is the longer end of the curve, and that's what's really starting to move. Meanwhile, commodity prices are rising, uh, oil prices back above 50, copper has been very strong, uh, commodities in general, I think, are rising, and I think inflation is getting ready to accelerate. And, you know, this is going to just make the pain greater for the average American who's already, you know, suffering a rising cost of living uh, while his, you know, paychecks have been diminished. And, you know, I don't see any quick fixes here on the job front. You know, I mean, we're we're still hemorrhaging of full-time jobs and creating these low-paying part-time jobs. And that's not going to, you know, turn around, you know, when Trump is inaugurated. Will we ever see maybe a fraction, maybe a you know, high number of jobs coming back to the United States based on what's happening today, repatriation of funds, companies saying they'll bring money back here. Is that a reality or is that just political well, talk? Well, bringing money back isn't going to necessarily bring any jobs back. You know, we just bring the money home and maybe companies pay out bigger dividends and Americans spend that to buy more right. imported products or maybe they use it to buy back stock. <clears throat> but I don't really see 
a big increase in productive employment. I mean, we have you know a lot of deregulating to do, um, and Trump talks about it, but we'll you know let's see what happens. I mean, it's you know regulations are rarely rolled back. You know, government spending needs to be cut. Reagan couldn't even pull that off, and you know Reagan promised to cut spending. Trump didn't even make those promises. He he talked about increasing spending, and you know that's likely to happen. You know, we're likely to get some type of middle class tax cut and some type of government spending increases. All of that is just going to add to the deficits and inflation and ultimately, you know, lower standards of living and, and, you know, destroy the value of the dollar. So before President Obama leaves office, we have, what, about $20 trillion of, of debt. And to that, you add $3 trillion for local and state uh, governments. How much more debt can we leave our future generations, and can we really pay it? Oh, no, we can't pay it. I mean, paying it is impossible. But the question is, can we service it? Can we just pay the interest right. on the debt? And the answer to that question is not if interest rates go up. As long as interest rates stay this low, <clears throat> then we can keep paying for a while. But <clears throat> at some point, interest rates have to go up. And if they don't go up because the Fed won't let them go up, then it's the dollar that's going to crash. But one way or another... Right. Either we default on the debt because we let interest rates go up or we inflate it away because we don't. But either way, the people who are owning the bonds are not going to get paid. Right. Because either they're going to lose their money or the money is going to lose its value. But they're not going to get back their purchasing power. Going back to the real estate bubble for a moment. Why did most of the population ignore the signals of this bubble bursting? Was it because we kept hearing the real estate prices historically never go down? It's a solid investment. What really triggered the people to continue? Well, I think it was, you know, popular delusions and the madness of crowds. I mean, most of the people who didn't see the real estate bubble owned a house. And, you know, they didn't want to admit that the asset that they own, their biggest asset that they thought was going to appreciate indefinitely, uh, they didn't want to acknowledge that it was a bubble because this was their ticket to retirement. I mean, you know, the idea that you can just buy a home and live in it, and as you live in it and enjoy it every year, it just goes up in value by $50,000, $100,000. I mean, people, average people, you know, people, if you were a teacher, a school teacher, or a fireman, and you were, you know, 40 years old, you thought you'd be a multimillionaire by the time you were 60 because how much your house was going to be worth. And so nobody had to save any money. You can buy whatever you wanted because the house did the work for you. In fact, I think a lot of people didn't even think they needed a job. They just thought if they bought a house, that was the only job they needed. The house would do all the work because it would just keep going up in value and they could keep, you know, borrowing the money. Uh, so nobody wanted to believe it. Of course, you had all the people from the mortgage market and the the realtors. They no, they want they wanted the party to keep going. Uh, so you know there was not that many people that you know that really even wanted to acknowledge this. Nobody wanted it to end. And anybody like me, if I tried to rain on that parade, right? I mean, I was immediately attacked by everybody. You know, so uh, and that's always what happens. You know, when you nobody nobody wants to. You know, you know, you're the bearer of bad news. It's like there's an expression, you know, sh you know, don't shoot the messenger. Well, you know, they used to shoot at me all the time. Nobody wanted that message. Well, you, you've been criticized by Ben Stein and, 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 and the rest of them all the time. What do they say now, by the way? Is it usually first they laugh at you, then when you're right? Well, you were right all along. No, but then they still don't want to. Then they say you were just lucky or you were a stop clock, you know. But, ben, you know, Ben said a lot of good things about me um, recently. In fact, he even did a blurb on my my latest book, uh, which is the, the Real Crash, America's Coming Bankruptcy, How to Save Yourself and Your Country. And if you haven't read that book, uh, you should pick it up, you know, get it on Amazon. Or, you know, I have my own uh, site where I sell my books, too, or link to my books, shiftbooks.com. So you can, uh, you know, just go there as, you know, shift books. But oh, by the way, a great book that I have, I'm doing a, a holiday special on this book, is um, a collector's edition of my book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. It's an illustrated kind of cartoon book on economics that I think is an excellent primer for teenagers, young adults. But of course, anybody can read it. But it really is a great introduction to free market economics, Austrian economics. It dispels all the myths that 
you know, your kids are learning in high school and college when they take economics courses and they learn all this Keynesian nonsense. So I'm autographing copies and selling them at a discount uh, on my website at uh, shiftbooks.com while supplies last. We don't know because I, I bought I bought out how many they had left at the publisher Wiley. And so, um, you know, for Christmas, you want to buy them, want to give them away as gifts. I think they're great uh, books, good coffee table books. I mean, I even I have clients that read them to their young children, you know, uh, and, you know, it's it's very educational. But it's funny. You know, you'll get a good laugh as, when you're reading the book. Save, save one for me. I'll read it to my daughter. And I have to tell you, I have to compliment you because, you know, most people, when they hear the word economist or financial expert, People think, oh, no, it's going to be boring talk. But you're one of those people. Then when you speak, you speak in such a clear, down-to-earth manner that people understand. I saw your video from a few years ago at uh, Occupy Wall Street where you were the 1%. I'm a one percenter. Ask me a question. And I have to tell you, I mean, it was very convincing whether you were telling people that you were very approachable. You had an open-door policy. What came out of that, by the way? Yeah, it's interesting because I guess the, some other website just happened to put up a copy of that. You know, because it was originally I did that. What was it? Uh, three, three years ago, yeah. four years ago. I forget how long it was when they did the Occupy Wall Street movement. But I went down there. Reason TV came down with me. I had the idea to go. And so we told Reason about it. And they said, oh, yeah, let, we'll film it for you. And so I went down there to Zuccotti Park. And at the time I did it, we got a lot of views, you know, a lot of websites picked it up. Some of them crashed. They were very popular. And I went and discussed it on TV. I mean, I was on Anderson Cooper talking about it. A few other shows had me on because, you know, it was, you know, a lot of people were watching him. And then, of course, it died down. And then some website just happened to put up a copy of it recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. And it got now it's got another, you know, 1.7 million views, you know, so, you know, it kind of has a new life. But, you know, what, what what made me go down there was I saw these people protesting, you know, uh, on Wall Street and they were, they're, they're protesting capitalism. They're protesting what they saw as the problem, which was Wall Street and the banks. And uh, they were blaming Wall Street for the crisis. And I like, you know, these people are right to be upset. They're right to be protesting, but they're directing their anger in the wrong direction. They should be in Washington. They should be protesting the Fed. They should be protesting Congress and, and the president, not capitalism, because capitalism is not their enemy. Capitalism is their salvation. Their enemy is government, is socialism or corporatism, fascism, whatever you want to call it. But <clears throat> we've got a, you know, a government controlled type command economy centrally planned out of Washington, as opposed to a real free market economy. And so I wanted to go down there and, and try to educate, you know, the people. But more importantly, I knew that by filming it and having it up on YouTube, that I would educate a lot more people than the people in the park. And even if I couldn't convince the people in the park, I could convince people that were watching at home. And that's exactly what happened, because you know, for years, I, I get emails from people. Of course, now I'm getting a, more of them because of this new, you know, new, new video. <clears throat> but I've been getting even before this new video came out. You know, I still get emails from people all around the world, particularly people that live in countries that used to be communist. And people email me, young people. Uh, hey, I used to be socialist. I used to be very left wing. But then I saw this and and I, you know, and it got me thinking and I've done more research and I'm, I've done a complete, you know, 180 and I'm a, you know, total free market guy now, conservative. So it, it, it worked. I mean, it accomplished what I was hoping in that I was able to use that, that podium, that platform and all those people and the dialogue that we had in a positive way. I mean, even if I didn't necessarily change the minds of the 40 or 50 people who happened to be there, I've probably changed the minds of thousands of people who were watching the videos around the world. And you were very, very patient. But I have to say, some of the people that disagree with you, when you ask them, what do you do? They were government employees. Where do they think that the money that pays them on that government job, where do they think the money come from? Yeah, well, most people don't even care, you know, <laughs> where it comes from. But yeah, I mean, all... Every, in fact, people that work for government don't even pay taxes, really. I mean, they think they do, right? Because 
they they get a paycheck and they they have taxes taken out of it. But it's not really paying taxes. If you work for the government, let's say the government pays you fifty thousand dollars a year, and then you pay ten thousand in taxes, you're, the government is paying you forty thousand. That's a year. right. You're not you're not paying any taxes at all because you're not giving the government anything that they didn't already have. You're just giving them back a little bit of what they gave you. But the net effect is that the government is not getting tax revenue from its own employees. It is paying its employees. So all the taxes have to be paid by people who work in the private sector. That's the only reason that government workers can get paid. They do nothing. They're not supporting the government at all. They like to think they are, but they're not. They're living off the taxpayer. They're not taxpayers. They're tax takers. Let me go to Dodd Frank for a moment. Do you think Dodd Frank was the answer to the real estate bubble bursting? <laughs> Hell no. I mean, first of all, Chris Dodd, Dodd and Barney Frank were part of the architects of the financial crisis. Right. They were in bed with Fannie and Freddie. I mean, they were, you know, so to have them try to find the solution is like <clears> the know, fox guarding the hen house. Or even, you know, let's hire the mafia to, to solve our crime problem, right. you know. And, and and so, no, Dodd-Frank never should have been passed. And it's done more harm than good to the extent that it's even done good. Uh, but the, the reason that we had a financial crisis is that government intervention into the market created the conditions that led to that crisis. So what we should have learned from our mistakes is that we want to remove all these government uh, you know, interferences, these impediments, these subsidies, these regulations that distort the markets and that lead to this type of reckless risk taking and, and, and bubble blowing. But we didn't do that. Instead of reducing the role of government in the markets, we expanded that role. And so now the governments are able to do even more damage than they were before. How responsible do you think was Glass-Steagall, the, the, the removal of Glass-Steagall in 19, I mean, during the Clinton times, how responsible was this for the creation of the bubble? Minimal, minimal. It was more the Federal Reserve uh, and, you know, Fannie and Freddie and the FHA had been there all along. But, you know, the real problem with Glass-Steagall was the fact that we even had it. I mean, that the, the problem and the need for some of these regulations all stems from the bad decision that Franklin Roosevelt made in the 30s for the government to insure bank accounts. And of course, when he made that decision, the insurance only applied to a small percentage of the deposits. But it's, you know, the camel's nose under the tent. Once we made the mistake of, you know, going down that road, you know, now the government insures pretty much everything. Why was that done, though? Was it Roosevelt enticing people to put their money back in the uh, bank accounts after the depression started? Yeah, because, you know, there were some banks that failed. I mean, a very small percentage and some people lost their deposits. And so the idea was, OK, the government's going to guarantee these bank accounts so that you won't have to worry about losing your deposit. But I want people worried about losing their money because then they'll be careful about which banks they entrusted to. Um, but. Now you have this moral hazard where nobody gives a damn what the bank does with your deposit because it's government guaranteed. Now the banks know this, so there's no point in the banks competing for safety. So they just, you know, do all kinds of reckless things. And now you have to have government kind of monitoring the reckless behavior of banks, but they're only acting recklessly because the government removed the free market incentive not to. Uh, because when people were concerned about their deposits, then banks had to be responsible in order to attract deposits. And a lot of people said, well, you know, the average American doesn't know how to read a balance sheet, wouldn't know how to analyze uh, a bank to know whether it's safe or not. Well, you don't have to. Look, I don't know anything about auto mechanics, but I still buy a car. And, you know, I could go and read consumer reports or I can talk to other people who maybe do know a little bit about cars and they can help me make a selection. You know, I don't know anything about how a computer works, but I can buy one and I buy, you know, I don't, you know, I buy good ones that are quality because I could do research and same thing about a television set. I don't know. You know I couldn't build one. I have no idea how to repair one. Uh, so the same thing would happen with banks. There would be 
uh, publications that would rank banks. And of course, you know, banks, you know, you can see, oh, you know, where does Warren Buffett keep his money? I'm going to keep my money there. You know, where do the smart people bank? Okay, well, you know, they must be good. Right. So if you don't know enough, then, you know, follow the people who do. Right. You know, so I think the free market would would produce a very sound, stable banking system. But the one that we have now that's built on government guarantees is a complete mess. I mean, this is a disaster. And, you know, we we came close to the abyss in 08 because these whole all these banks would have toppled. And, you know, during the Depression, you know, one or two percent of the deposits were lost. Had we not had the tarp and all those big bailouts, I mean, we would have lost. I mean, huge percentages of deposits would have been lost. But at the end of the day, what the government did in the bailouts is just made the system that much worse. All those banks that were too big to fail. They're way bigger now. <laughs> and so, you know, and, you know, they're going to fail. And if they don't fail, it's only going to be because the dollar collapsed. And so it doesn't even matter that you that your deposits are not lost because they're not going to be worth anything. I remember back in the early 90s when we had the the the, well, the banking collapse and the the uh, I forgot the, the actual name. You, you remember remind me. Uh, <sighs> What was it in the in the in 1990, 1991, where we had to come in and bring all these trustees to take over? Oh, you're talking you're talking about the SNL, the long term capital, because the SNL crisis was earlier than that. The crisis in the late 1990s was that long term capital, but we had an SNL crisis, savings loan. But that I think was in the late 80s. Late eighties and uh, right, right, and we early nineties. Yeah, it was it was well before. We were picking up the pieces in the early nineties, though. Yeah. And that had to do with changes in the tax law, you know, that that took away a lot of deductions that existed in the real estate market. And that was, you know, but a lot of these savings and loans, of course, you know, they had government guaranteed deposits. And that was the source of some of the reckless behavior. You know, that is the moral hazard when government does that. So you know, government should not be insuring bank accounts. That's that is the problem. When I go to the bank, which is not that often lately. And I see this $250,000 limit. I laugh because I think if a collapse were to happen, how much money do we have really? Do we have in circulation? Well, the thing is that limit doesn't even matter because every time a bank has failed recently, the government has reimbursed every deposit. So nobody has ever lost anything. I mean, so, you know, they won't they won't let anybody lose money. But, you know, ultimately, you know, the FDIC has very little money. And so if a major bank were to fail, I mean, there's nothing there. So the Fed would have to bail it out, you know, because the FDIC, the FDIC doesn't actually have enough uh, to cover the, the losses. Speaking of government guarantees, I think this is, in my opinion, another bubble that's coming. Student loans. What well, do you, what's coming. your take on this? I mean, the student loan bubble has been growing for years. You know, in fact, I wrote about that pretty extensively in my book, uh, you know, The Real Crash. And course the bubble has gotten so much bigger since since i wrote about it but that is another example of government creating a problem and then holding itself out as the solution to a problem of its own creation and then making the problem it created even worse with its so-called solution you know at one time college degrees were very valuable but not very expensive And not that many people actually went to college as a percentage of the population. But if you were the type of person that would really benefit from that education, you could get one. And even if your parents were of relatively modest means, uh, but you wanted to go to Harvard or Yale, they could swing it. And even if they couldn't, you could get a job over the summer and work your way through college. And, you know, that was very common. Uh, for much of, you know, the, the 20th century or certainly the earlier part of the 20th century, people worked their way through college. Nobody graduated college with debt. Debt is a function of government. What happened is some politicians decided that, hey, we can get students to vote for us if we promise to get them so they can borrow money to go to school. So they won't have to work a summer job or they won't have to work evenings. We'll just arrange it so they can borrow money by guaranteeing the loans. And hey, everybody saw that's great. I could just borrow this money, right? Well, the minute this happened, this started this big bubble because then the colleges, instead of having to compete for students by keeping their tuition low, 
now the, tu- the, the students could pay the tuition no matter how high it rose because they could always get the money because they could borrow it. And normally, you know, a bank wouldn't loan money to a kid that, you know, 18, 19. I mean, what's you know, what's the collateral? Nothing. But once the government co-signs the loan, well, everybody wanted to loan money to these 18 year olds and they didn't care you know, what they were majoring in. If their major had any economic viability, they didn't care if they were an A student or an F student because the government didn't care. All the loans were guaranteed. So we created this situation where colleges and universities could use this student loan program. They milked it. They kept raising prices. The students kept borrowing the money. They would raise the salaries of the teachers and the administrators. And then they would build these fancy gymnasiums and, you know, all kinds of housing and this, this huge bubble. And it was all because of this government money. Meanwhile, everybody was, you know, funneled into the university system. Everybody was told you have to go to college. Everybody has to go to college, you know, whether you're, you're smart or whether you're an idiot. You know, I mean, colleges actually had remedial and still have remedial math, remedial English. We have people going to college that shouldn't even have graduated high school, but they were pushed through high school. You know, no child left behind, whether they can read or not. And you have people literally who are functional illiterates going to college and, you know, taking remedial courses. And, you know, they're never going to benefit from these degrees. Everybody's got a college degree. In fact, if you want to see a funny video that I shot about three years ago when I was in New Orleans, I happened to be there for a conference. And so I took a microphone and a camera and I walked down Bourbon Street and I was asking all the people that worked there one night. And of course, you got bouncers, you got strippers, you got bartenders, you got pedicab drivers, you know, all kinds of people doing, you know, menial, no skill, low skill type work. And. I asked everybody, you know, did you go to college? Yes. You know, what was your major? You know, when did you graduate and how much do you owe? And I mean, you just this is it. I mean, there are some people that had two or three different degrees. I was talking to people that had master's degrees that, you know, were tending bar. Right. This is it. You know, and a lot of these people graduated five years ago, 10 years ago, and they're doing nothing. They have jobs that they, they didn't even need a high school diploma for these jobs, let alone a college degree. But, you know. And this is all government schools, government. You know, we, we don't really have private education to a great extent because the government takes all the money in taxes and property taxes. And and now you've got most people have no choice but to send their kids to these lousy government schools where they learn nothing. The schools are run for the benefit of the administrators and the teachers unions. Uh, no one gives a damn about the kids. They graduate. They learn nothing. And then they go to college for no reason. And now it takes, you know five and six years to get these four-year degrees because there's so many people in college, you can't even get the courses that you need to graduate. So kids are there forever. They're graduating 50, 100,000 or more in debt. They have no marketable skills. They take these ridiculous uh, liberal arts courses. Uh, they study, you know, women's studies, uh, African-American studies, you know, psychology of sports, all kinds of nonsense. They know nothing. They've wasted the formative years of their lives when they could have been in the workforce, learning skills, making connections. Instead, they got drunk and partied uh, for five or six years. And now they have so much debt that they can't even get a real job because if they get a job, they can't afford to pay their debt back and their taxes. So they stay. They're living with their parents. You know, they leave for college for five, four or five, six years. And then they come home and now they're living in the basement. You know, and so this is this is all created by government. This is one gigantic bubble. At this point, college degrees are, are so expensive that they makes it makes sense. Hardly anybody should go to college at this point because the cost benefit is just not there. And, you know, with the Internet and the ease with which you can learn and access information online, who needs a college? What's <laughs> the right. point? That's you right. can, you know, if you look at the smartest Americans, they were self-educated men. I mean, a lot of the founding fathers didn't go to college. Very, very smart men were 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 were, were self-taught. In fact, it's interesting if if you um you know go when you go to that YouTube channel and and if you look at my uh, my video about um about the college I talked about in, uh, in in New Orleans. If you look about that, if you read the uh, the description of the video, right? It's a very interesting description. But I point out the three wealthiest Americans who have ever lived, right? John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, 
and Cornelius Vanderbilt, right? Those are the wealthiest Americans. I think the net worth of these three is estimated. Rockefeller was worth like 600 billion in today's terms. Six, I mean, some obscene amount of money. Uh, Carnegie about 300 billion. And I think Vanderbilt maybe 150, 175 billion, right? You can compare that to Bill Gates, who's the richest person alive today, who's worth about 60 billion, 65 billion, right? Carnegie dropped out of high school at 16. Vanderbilt dropped out of school at 13. I mean, Carnegie dropped out at 13. And Vanderbilt dropped out of school at age 11. <laughs> so here, guy only went to school till he was 11 years old, <laughs> yet built an empire. You know, and so you can learn a lot. And even Bill Gates, by the way, who's the richest living America in the world, dropped out. He, he dropped out of college, but at least he made it to college, but he did not graduate. <laughs> so, you know, some of the richest, most successful Americans of all time never went to college. You know, and, and you know, so it's been oversold, overhyped by governments and teachers unions. But, you know, anytime the government gets involved in something and also, you know, it started with the GI Bill and that's kind of where they got involved in education. But whatever they get involved in, it, the quality goes down and the cost goes up. We want a free market and we want to get government completely out of education. No government loans, no government guarantees. I like to see government out of K through 12. I like to get rid of all these private schools and let entrepreneurs compete for students in the free market. Because then you got to deliver a good product. Then you got to sell the parent on sending the kid to that school. Hey, my school is great. I here's our here's our graduation rate. Here's what percent of our kids get get into Ivy League schools, or here's how the jobs that people get when they graduate from our school. Instead, you know the public schools have a captive audience. You got to send your kid to this school. You live in this school district. Your kid has to go here. I mean, so why would you expect good education with zero competition? <clears throat> no, you were running for senator years ago. We just wonder why you weren't elected. <laughs> well, the people enough people didn't vote for me. Um, you know, the person who I ran against in the primary was Linda McMahon. She lost in the general election, but she just got appointed by Trump to be the head of the small business. Administration. That's right. You just saw that today. <laughs> yeah. Now it's George Carlin used to say, "All you need to be admitted in college these days is a pencil." But I see so many similarities between the real estate bubble and the student loan bubble. You know, all these kids that go to college these days, um, you know, I want to be an underwater basket weaver. Shouldn't there be an organization, at least if they keep it going with government guarantees, that looks at the future? Let's say that it takes four or five years for you to finish your, your degree. Shouldn't they look at the future to see if that job will be in demand? And if it's not, well, well how they, do they he, even know? No well, people even know. I mean, look, the, the government should not be involved in this at all. You know, that's the only way to do it. And that and that would get the cost down. If the government stepped away and no longer provided loans or guaranteed loans, colleges would have to slash their prices. That's the only way they would have any customers because nobody can afford to go without the government help. Well, let's but, let, you know, take it out that, of the equation. Take the bank, the, uh, the the government out of the equation. Let's leave it between the bank and the student then. Shouldn't the student provide, if you and I need to buy a business, we need to provide a business. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, but you know what? A business a bank, plan. Most banks won't loan students money to go to college. It's a, it's too risky a loan, you know, without the government. No collateral. Uh, here's the point. Here's the point, though. My father, for example, went to college. And his parents had no money, so he, he, he waited tables over the summer at, at, a, at, a, at a lodge in the Catskills, and he paid for school. If the government got out of the way, college would be so inexpensive that nobody would have to borrow money to go. That's the point. Because they would the have to compete. Reason, yes, the only reason college is expensive is because of the loans. Take away the loans, and the prices go down. And of course... You know, not as many people would go to college, right? So you wouldn't have to spend six years. You can get out in four or three, you know. Um, but people go to college now, you know, that that shouldn't go. You know, why? You know, I mean, if, if, if you could barely get out of high school, if you're one of these kids that, you know, was a C student in high school, you know, what's the point of going to college? I mean, I mean, if, if cause there, there are a lot of, you know, you can make a living. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a lawyer. You know, there are a lot of people, you know, you can make a very good living, uh, you know, doing doing stuff that that you don't learn in college. You know, 
You know, I have to say, for the longest time, I worked for a Fortune 100 company. And at the beginning, I had to stop going to college because I was being promoted. But it was the pressure, the pressure from everybody. Well, if you need to be promoted, uh, you need to have your degree. It really made it didn't make a difference to me. But it was that pressure. Now, these kids, I mean, there's so many derogatory terms being used against them. Basement dwellers, snowflakes, millennials, you name it. But at the same time, these kids are coming out of college with a, a degree that's worthless. They cannot buy a home. What will that do to the real estate market in the future when oh, all these wow. 20s they and they, yeah. they can't even rent an apartment? Right. Yeah, that's how broke they are. You know what? It, it would be much better instead of leaving home when you're 18, you, know, you graduate high school and living in a dorm or off campus housing and borrowing all this money going to college. <clears throat> Just skip college, live with your parents. You know, for a few years after you get out of high school, get a job. And then when you're 21, 22, you'll have a good job. You'll be making some money. You won't have any debt. Now you can move out of your parents' house and live on your own. What's the point of going to college for a few years? And now you're stuck in your parents' house until you're in your 30s or 40s. (laughs) I asked somebody from the government the other day, why do we have to guarantee student loans? And the answer was because there's too much money to be made. That's why lobbyists are totally in favor of keeping it the way it is. How do we remove oh, well, that equation? Well, look, the, the, the universities love it. They make a ton of money, right? Colleges, uh, the lenders, the lenders, the banks make a ton of money. The losers are the students. They're the ones that end up with all the debt or the taxpayers are the losers when the students can't repay the debt and they're stuck with, with the bill. So, you know, this is a situation, though, where government gets involved in housing. And so they run up the cost of housing, and now we have a housing bubble. We have all this mortgage debt. What are they doing with automobiles? Look, we got an auto bubble now. That's right. Because all these, you know, cheap money and government, you know, took over a lot of the auto lending and bailed out the auto companies. And you know, now people, you know, a, a, a auto loan is kind of like a mini mortgage now for people. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, the government, anything the government gets involved in, is a complete disaster. On the other hand, look at the things where the government is not involved, like. You know, consumer electronics, right? <laughs> there, everything gets better. Everything gets cheaper and everything gets better. You know, that's because that's the free market. That's competition. So we want that in education. We want that in housing. We want that in healthcare. The government has screwed up healthcare. Why is healthcare costs rising so much? You know, you know, they always try to say, well, you know, the reason that healthcare is more expensive is because, you know, now it's more sophisticated. We can, you know, we can do more things now. It's more complicated. So it costs more. You know, that's what they would say about computers. You know, if governments made computers, we'd be, well, why are computers so expensive now? Well, because look at all the things they do today. I mean, the computers are a lot more powerful than what they used to be. And they have a lot more, they're a lot more complicated. And that's why they cost so much money. But the reality is computers are cheaper today than they were five, 10 years ago, even though they're better. So that's what the free market, if we got the government out of healthcare, healthcare would be cheaper today. It'd be better and cheaper, right? It would be just like a cell phone or, or flat screen TV. That's what the free market does. It makes things better and it makes them less expensive. The government makes things worse and makes things more expensive. Now, there's this propaganda, I mean, as you saw during your, your one percenter meeting there at uh, in New York, many people, when they hear... Wall Street, when they hear capitalism, they have been brainwashed by, I don't know who, to completely demonize that aspect, and they just want to trust their well-intentioned government. Yeah, yeah, you know, but, you know, the important thing, though, I think that people need to do is recognize that, you know, as bad as 08 was, I mean, what, what we're heading for is going to be a lot worse. And, you know, if you weren't prepared financially for that, I mean, you got to be prepared for this next one because there's no there's no bailouts. Right. I mean, the markets came back. Right. The government was able to reflate the bubble. So if you held on at your house, hey, maybe it bounced back. Your stock portfolio certainly came back. Uh, but there's going to be no coming back from this next one. So people have to really be prepared. And, you know, that's really what I think is the most important thing that I can help people with now is really getting their financial house in order, particularly if you're nearing retirement or you're already retired and you have a portfolio that you're hoping uh, to, uh, you know, live out your retirement on uh, the income uh, generated from that portfolio. You have really got to act quickly because the biggest losers are going to be the savers and investors who are just not positioned, who are going to bear the brunt of this. Uh, because, you know, this is going to be a giant default 
uh, whether it's legitimate, honest, or through inflation. And so a lot of people are going to be left holding the bag, and it's very unfortunate. But if you act now, if you, you know, you can do something. You can get your money in, out of U.S. assets. You can invest in places like Switzerland or Singapore or Hong Kong or New Zealand or countries that I really think will provide uh, some solid opportunity and protection from really what's going to be going on here. So I, I would encourage people, you know, my my company, Europe Pacific Capital, I manage money as a broker dealer. Europac.com is the website, E-U-R-O-P-A-C.com. People can visit that, uh, you know, contact me, uh, you know, definitely like, you know, sign up for my weekly uh, digest. And so they're, you know, keeping, uh, you know, abreast of what's going on. I didn't want to bring up the auto bubble, but that's it. We were thinking about the subprime mortgage crisis, but this is a $1 trillion consumer auto loan bubble. I remember a few years ago when I went to Florida for a visit, I turned on the TV. Almost every channel on a Sunday afternoon had auto dealers selling their vehicles. Never, never talked about how much the, the vehicle was worth. Just the monthly payment. Is this what's brainwashing people these days? Well, I mean, look, everybody, you know, wants that new car, you know, and in fact, you know, a lot of these young people that are living with their parents, I mean, that's basically, you know, that's all they got to show for themselves is a car, right? You know, uh, and some people are living in their cars. So that's what another reason that people can pay a lot of money for cars. But, uh, you know, if you're 25, 30 year old kid living with your parents, I mean, at least if you can drive a nice car, you know. You might be able to take a girl out on a date or, you know, you, you without she might not know that you live with your parents. Uh, so people and the government is making it easier for people to qualify low down payments, no down payments, seven year, uh, you know, loans, zero percent financing, leases. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of people, too, are taking out these low mileage leases. You know, they're getting, let's say, 10,000 miles a year and they're driving their cars 15,000 miles and they have no idea how much they're going to owe when their lease is up, you know, and they're not going to have the money to pay because they're broke, right? They're they're living paycheck to paycheck. So, yeah, I mean, this this is another gigantic bubble. But, you know, people have been suckered into it by government, you know, just like they get people to buy lottery tickets. You know, you get these poor people, you know, <laughs> uh, buying lottery tickets with money that they should be using for, you know, food, uh, you know, but you know, the government corrupts everybody, you know, and uh, they get people to act recklessly and irresponsibly. How much of this is attributed to the Federal Reserve and the central banks? Well, a lot of it. I mean, without the Fed, I mean, none of this would be possible. You know, because if the, if the government had to borrow real money, if they had to actually tax us, if we were still they on wouldn't. a gold standard. Yeah, well, the people wouldn't put up for it. I mean, right. we, we need to go back to to sound money. I mean, that is the, the, the thing. And, you know. One way that people can do that, and I'm very excited to uh, be associated with this company, uh, is a company called Gold Money. And my gold company, Shift Gold, is now part of Gold Money. I, I, I sell physical precious metals. But Gold Money, and everybody everybody listening to this pot, you know, interview, the first thing that you should do at the end of the interview is go to goldmoney.com and open up an account. Right? You go, it's very quick. You can do it for free. And what it is is you can buy gold. Right. You just take your Visa or MasterCard and buy 25 bucks, 50 bucks worth of gold. Uh, and the only cost is a half a percent fee to buy the gold. So you pay a half a percent over spot, which is very, very low. But it's like a bank account, except it's in gold. You'll get a free MasterCard, right? That you can now use. You can use it any, any place they take MasterCard. You can put it into an ATM and get cash out, right? And you're spending your gold. Right. But more importantly, let's say that you want to give your gold to somebody else or you want somebody else to give you gold. You can transfer. So let's say you have $50 worth of gold and you want to give somebody $5 worth of your gold. You could just text it to them. You can email it to them. You can you can Facebook it to them. You could just give them your gold and now they'll own the gold that you own. This is real gold you own in a vault with your name on it, Brinks vault. And so what this is doing is it is basically letting you put yourself on a gold standard. You know, before the government came up with paper money, we were all using gold. But paper was more convenient to spend rather than lugging around bars of gold. But with the Internet and with gold money, you can have your gold stored at a vault, and now you can spend it 
as easily as you can spend the cash that you have in the bank. In fact, easier. I mean, if I want to send somebody in Europe 100 uh, euros, how would you do that if you're an American? If you don't even have any euros, how do you send somebody 100 euros? I mean, are you going to go to a bank and buy some euros and then put them in an envelope and mail them to your friend in Europe? You know, what's that going to cost? How long is that going to take? Are you going to go to a bank and wire the euros? Or, you know, the wire would cost $15, $20. I mean, I mean it's 15 But I can send somebody 100 euros worth of my gold right now. And they, you know, and they, it's gold is gold. And they can pull it out as euros. I bought it with dollars. They sell it for euros. Or they could just transact. I mean, when you have a gold money account, you can earn gold. You can have your paycheck uh, direct deposited as gold into your account. You know, if you're a landlord, you can you can allow your tenants to pay their rent in gold. Then you can pay your bills in gold. I mean, they're going to develop an entire ecosystem. Right now, they got 1.3 million users. I think they'll have 100 million users all around the world that are going to be now in a platform where they can transact with one another in gold, but transact with everybody else in paper money because they have a debit card. And the guy on the other side of the debit card doesn't know, you know, that you've got gold in your account because he's getting euros or dollars, whatever, you know, whatever, wherever you're spending. But I think it's going to be like um, FedEx disrupting the post office or Uber disrupting the taxi cabs. The government's product, government money is no good. It loses value every year through inflation. You put your money in the bank, you get no interest. And there's always the risk that the bank fails. So you got to put your money into the banking system where it's at risk. They pay you nothing for taking that risk. And inflation is eroding away the value of the money that you don't spend. Alternatively, you open up a gold money account. You have real gold in your account. It doesn't lose value. There's no risk of failure because it's not a bank account. It's not a liability. You own the gold. In fact, you could take physical delivery of your gold whenever you want it. That was my next question. What about the people who say, well, I don't trust people who say they have the gold if I can't touch it? No, you can have it whenever you want. You can order it out. You can get it in as small as 10 gram cubes, right? So it's there. It's deliverable. It's yours. Uh, and but, you know, I can buy a cup of coffee with it. I can buy a pack of chewing gum so you can spend tiny amounts of your gold or I can buy a car with it. I can, you know, buy whatever I want. So I think it's a great system. I think it's just going to explode. It's like a PayPal, only better because it's PayPal with gold. Right. Uh, and it's going to be universal. I'm on their website right now. I think I'm going to take payments with this because I've been taking payments, of course, cash and and so on. Uh, Bitcoin. What's your take on Bitcoin? Before we can talk about gold money again, because I want to read this. I think, yeah, I think gold money is better than Bitcoin because Bitcoin has no history as being a a commodity. It's just being used as as money, but it has no alternative use other than that. So if people decide they don't want you know, Bitcoin anymore. It's worthless. But gold has a multi-thousand year history as a valuable element, as a valuable commodity that people want irrespective of its, uh, you know, function as, as money. So you, you really know what gold is worth. You have long-standing relationships between an ounce of gold and a barrel of oil. You know, I mean, you go back to Roman times and, you know, if you lived in Rome thousands of years ago, a quality toga, Roman toga that, you know, maybe a senator would buy, that Roman toga costs an ounce of gold, a good toga. Well, how much is a good suit? Gold's 1200 bucks an ounce. That's about the, the cost of a, of a quality men's suit, right? You have that relationship going back thousands of years. You know, how much did a toga cost in Bitcoin? Well, who the hell knows? Bitcoin didn't exist until five, six years ago. So you don't have a historic relationship between Bitcoin and Bitcoin has no value. You can't do anything with Bitcoin. I mean, I've got gold on a ring. I've got gold in my watch. People have gold in their teeth. There's gold in cell phones. There's gold in medicine. People use gold, right? It has, you know, you can do things with it other than spend it as money. So, you know, yeah, I mean, taking payment, I mean, if you're going to take payment in gold, it's cheaper. It's cheaper than Visa. It's cheaper than MasterCard. It's the cheapest way to, to transact online. Yeah, uh, through gold. And of course, you know, I can I don't even have to be online, all right? Or I mean I could just you, you can they have an app, I think, if I if my cell phone is next to your cell, I can just directly like pass some of my gold right from me to you. Wow. 
I mean, there's this concern that people have with Bitcoin that governments may say, nope, enough, no more of this. But with gold, as you say, yeah. multi-thousand year history, 3784 per gram is what I see on the website right now. Yeah, and so, by the way, yeah. if you have Bitcoins, you can use your Bitcoins to buy gold into your gold money account. They accept Bitcoin, so you can buy your <laughs> wow. gold with your Bitcoins. Well, that's what I'm going to do. The, the Bitcoins yeah. I get, I'm going to buy gold. But thirty-seven eighty-four per gram. Say somebody puts say a thousand dollars with the gold fluctuation. What happens next day when the gold changes? Do you still have one thousand? Yeah, your gram total stays the same. So if you have a thousand grams, unless you spend it, right, your thousand grams are still there. But the dollar value of those grams is going to fluctuate as the price of gold changes. So if the price of gold goes up one percent, right, then your gold is worth 1% more than you paid. If the price of gold goes down 1%, then your grams are worth 1% less, right? There's gonna be a fluctuation. But I think over time, the price of gold is gonna go up. Look, when the, when, when the century began, right, gold was under $300 an ounce. It's more than tripled, right? So, you know, and I think it's got a long way to go. You go back to 1971, gold was $35 an ounce. Now it's, you know, 1175, right? So it's, it, gold goes up. It doesn't go up every day. It doesn't even go up every year, but over time, it just goes up. You know, that's the opposite of dollars or euros or yen. They just go down over time. They buy less and less and less. If you think back at, you know, what could you buy for a dollar 10 years ago? What could you buy 20 years ago, you know, versus what you can buy today? You can buy more with your gold, but you buy less with your dollars, right? Prices go down in terms of gold, but they go up in terms of dollars. Would you recommend this more for somebody who wants to make a deposit for long term rather than somebody who wants to you know, put money in and out? No, both. I mean, you use it. I mean, you can use your gold for commerce or you can save it right for the future and spend it later. But the beauty of gold money is your gold is liquid at all times. In fact, I have my credit card in my wallet, my debit card, and basically I'm carrying around all my gold. You can have a million dollars worth of gold in your account and you're carrying it around in your wallet. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could, you know, you could buy a house with it if you wanted to. Uh, but also, or I could buy, you know, something small. Uh, so it, it's great, you know, and there's free storage on a, up to a thousand grams, which is about 40 grand. That's free storage. Doesn't cost you anything to store it. I mean, it's the best deal online. No storage costs. It's allocated gold. It's your gold. It's in a Brinks vault. You can select a vault in Switzerland or a vault in uh, Singapore or Toronto or, you know, anywhere in the world you want. You know you, you know, you can see how much you have, where it's vaulted. And good thing, too, is if you refer your friends, you can earn some free gold for everybody that signs up. So, you know, you as you introduce more people into the community by emailing everybody that has an account gets a special code and then you can send that code to your friends by email or text. And then if they use that code to sign up, you'll get a little free gold that you can spend. <laughs> this is great information for all our listeners starting the new year with a, a safer place to put your money. What happens after $40,000? Well, then you got to start paying. It's very low. I think it's uh, like 15 basis points a year. So for $100,000 of gold above that, I think you'd be paying $150 a year for the storage. So it's it's not a lot, you know, to have your to have your gold stored. But for a lot of people, they'll never even get to the 40,000, you know, the thousand grams. But by the way, too, right now, if you sign up right now, we, we just launched a promotion today. Whoever the, the 10 people that sign up the most users right in their referral between now, and I think January something, the top 10 people will be auctioned off and the, the winners are going to get two tickets to this year's Super Bowl. Plus uh, airfare to the to uh, I think it's Houston, uh, airfare and three days hotel and the tickets. So uh... <laughs> those who are listening to Veritas tonight that I want to refer to gold money. Is there a way to uh, have a special link for them to? Be well, yeah. Well, I mean, if you wanted to, if you you can put the link on your site and then on the website to your show, make a banner and let people click on it, and then every time they sign up, you'll get a little gold. Let's do that, folks, because as you know, any 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 funds that come our way helps with production. So just go to our website, VeritasRadio.com, and we'll have a banner right there. But we have one more hour left with Peter Schiff. When we come back, Peter was able to envision what the collapse was going to be, and he's envisioning another one. I'd like him to paint a picture what the tripwire event might be, but most importantly, 
how to circumvent it or how to protect yourself from it. Peter, how can people get in touch with your work and, and be more familiar with it? Well, there's a lot of ways to find me on the internet. First of all, you know, I do my own uh, um, blog, uh, podcast rather. I used to do a daily syndicated radio show, which I no longer had time to do. So I stopped at the Peter Schiff show, but <clears throat> I do this podcast on shiftradio.com. So check that out. And the podcast is, you know, also, you know, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they have podcasts, they pick it up. I do a lot of YouTube videos on my YouTube channel, Shift Report. Go and, you know, subscribe to my YouTube channel. If you're a subscriber, every time I do something new, you know, you'll get a little alert that there's a new video posted. But, and all my podcasts, I also end up putting on my YouTube channel as well. Well, again, also people should read my books. I mentioned shiftbooks.com. Uh, to get copies of my books, including the, the the Christmas deal that I've got going now on how an economy grows and why it crashes. But remember, my gold company, shiftgold.com, and my brokerage firm and asset management company, Euro-Pacific Capital, europac.com. That's really important, especially if you got the larger amount of money. You really need to protect yourself. Talk to one of my brokers about uh, having us manage your money and getting your portfolio repositioned for the real crash that is coming. And that's europac.com, E-U-R-O-P-A-C.com is the website. And we don't want to spread fear, we want to spread awareness. Right here on Veritas with Peter Chef. One more hour to come when we return. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for lots of great products. Thank you.